lie that poetry tells Is constant as the truth itself Without the lies and the false beliefs Where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. Hope you've all been well. You know, as well as the world allows you to be these days. Um, what are we talking about today? Today. Um, yeah, I don't think we've ever done an episode on climate change. No. Episodes on climate changes are like buses. <laughs> now we're going to do two. It's the first of a two-parter on climate change focusing particularly on extinction rebellion. Yes. What is extinction rebellion? Uh extinction rebellion is a a young organization or it's kind of like a network a sort of group of organizations that are loosely connected. Activist, yeah. Um it's activist organization uh rooted in I mean they say they're rooted in um kind of grassroots organizing and uh nonviolent resistance and protest. Yeah, so Parallels are the Occupy movement, for example, uh, civil rights agitation. Um, in so, I mean, it, it's we should specify that we are both outsiders here. We are not part of the the group, uh, and our understanding of the group's principles and methods are very much read as as from the outside. Uh, if any of our listeners uh, are more closely connected to the group, uh, then please let us know. Um, but from the outside, it seems like it's a loosely affiliated set of um, activists from a wide variety of different um, political backgrounds. In some senses, it seems to me, it reminds me a little bit of a more activist more perhaps more radical version of Stop the War. Yeah. In, in other words, an issue-based uh, alliance of anarchists, Marxists, and social democrats, and, and so yeah. on and so forth. So I, it doesn't seem to me that you could necessarily put them together in any one political bracket other than the thing that unites them, which is recognizing the, the severity of climate change. Uh, there is a, a something apocalyptic about um, about their understanding of climate change, I think. Yes. Uh, I think their position is that unless this uh, issue is tackled and tackled fast and tackled in, in using a set of measures that are more radical than anything that have been proposed so far, we are facing a kind of climate change apocalypse. Yes. It's in the name, isn't it? Yeah. They are rebelling against the imminent extinction, not just of um, human beings, but also of... Um, biodiversity biodiversity yeah. right they've had a number of high profile protests they they started off in Britain but the protests have been uh, around the world um, school students have been mobilized quite heavily in, in a way that perhaps have hasn't been the case for, for previous uh, uh, political movements of this kind uh, there've been a number of uh, schools students walking out of schools uh, uh again across multiple countries uh it's a very high profile and to our mind mostly very good thing yes uh 
What is our position here? Our position as as scholars of critical theory is always that we sit just to the side. Um, and f- for us, there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. Um, we're always looking at, I think, the big concepts. We're looking at capital, we're looking at labor, and we're looking at power. And um, in any organization, those things are always at play. Um so we're very interested in how they work, how they are at play, how the organization is aware of them and also not aware of them, as the case may be. Um, I think the one thing that we didn't talk about that is actually seems like a, an interesting precursor to Extinction Rebellion's organizing principles and um, the its kind of internal logic is the Women's March. Yeah. The Women's March yeah. is... Um, as well as I think the in the wake of the Parkland school shooting, yeah. um, the organization around um, marching for gun legislation in the yeah. United States. Of course, that is a, a national issue. That's a, a uniquely American issue. Yeah. Um, and the Women's March in some ways was in response specifically to Donald Trump. But that has, has kind of spread and grown legs. But in terms of the way they're organized and in terms of the, the overarching big picture narrative that's being addressed... Um, there's a a, a real um, there's an emphasis on the globe in its entirety, the earth in its entirety, humanity in its entirety, ecology as a kind of universal system of life. Um, and the goals are both very specific but also immense. I mean they're enormous goals. Yes. Um- so just to backtrack a second, we said at the start that we are going to be do, doing two episodes. Uh, the first episode, uh, which is this one, we are going to be thinking about uh, the various positions within various strands of Extinction Rebellion, specifically the climate change protesters more generally. Uh, the relation between between that and capitalism, where, where does capitalism feature in this uh in this mobilizing of, of protest and resistance. Uh, and next week we are going to be talking about something which is connected, but perhaps again moving, sort of changing the perspective slightly. We're going to be thinking about teenage activism. Uh, the obvious person in terms of climate change is Greta Thunberg. We're going to talk about her. We're going to talk about Emma Gonzalez from the Parkland shooting. Uh, we're going to talk about Malala Yousafzai. Uh, and a number of other high-profile teenage activists. And we are thinking about the ethics and politics of activism and childhood. Yes. And, and adolescence. Um, so these are the, the are, are two areas of focus here, I think. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, we've said this already, but I, I do want to reinforce the idea that we know that the the various sections of movement of the, of the movement that has been inspired by climate change is diffuse and we are certainly not trying to lump them into into any one camp there are climate change protesters who are tackling capitalism there are ones who are not uh, but we have felt again very much from the outside that 
while extinction rebellion is explicitly interested in power it there doesn't seem to be as much of an emphasis as there should be on hierarchies of power between human beings power seems to be there seems to be more of a concentration on hierarchies of power between human beings plants animals biodiversity and so on and it's it's in that sort of quite minute area that we want to situate our analysis yes and it's it's a difficult thing to tackle because of course as you say the organization is is actually many organizations that are loosely connected um with a series of goals and values um but we've both had similar responses to some of um the activities of so i think certainly british um extinction rebellion protests um and individuals who speak for extinction rebellion in various ways um it's interesting because one of their their stated um kind of points is that no individual is to blame for uh environmental catastrophe no individual has the power to cause climate change um and in fact all individuals are welcome as part of the movement um and that the the goal is systemic change they use the term systemic um and i think wouldn't disagree if we were to say they're interested in institutional change um through th- the mechanism of nonviolent resistance and um, strategies of inconveniencing politicians or people in positions of power, making the lives of CEOs of oil companies uncomfortable or difficult via social media activism or, you know, via spending time near their place of work or their home or that kind of thing. Um, all all uh, practices that have been used and mobilized in various long and noble history yeah. of activism. Yes. Um they themselves I think cite Gandhi Satyagraha as part of part of their their kind of their ongoing legacy of that which you know is problematic. Um but interesting. Um but actually when it comes down to it a lot of the rhetoric doesn't manage to escape language of individual behavior and responsibility. Yeah, and there's I mean even when it even when it isn't individual it it the rhetoric seems to me about collectives and systems without being about say class yes um and that distinction is important i think there is a recognition that climate change is not going to be caused by individuals it's not going to be solved by individuals but there seems to me again from the outside there seems to me much less of an emphasis on how different collectives of humans are differently responsible for and susceptible to the effects of climate change yes uh there is less of an understanding as to how some of the s- demands in terms of changing individual behavior that are being made are more or less possible depending on who you are and what kind of privilege you have um one of the things that struck both of us i think is 
the relationship between air travel and climate change. Yes. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yes. Um, obviously, you and I both fly a lot. Yes. I don't think we fly as much as other people necessarily. No. Um, but you and I both um, are, if we use the language of carbon footprints or um, acceptable levels of emissions, you and I are both over that limit every year. Yes. Because we fly once a year to visit our families at home. Yes. And that involves a long haul flight. Yes. Um, our families likewise come to visit us sometimes. We are lucky in that number one, we had the capacity to move in the first place. Yes. Um, a climate activists who believe that we shouldn't fly, you know, and there are plenty of climate activists who believe that we should never have had this privilege in the first place, um, that no one should have the privilege to fly to, to go anywhere that requires flight, you know? Yeah. Um, but I would say that we're lucky in the sense that you and I have talked many times about how our lives are enriched um, and how a lot of the, the people that we know in similar positions to us also talk about how their lives are enriched. And there's a, a deep sense of kind of significance and value and importance um, that we place on intercultural exchange, on um, experiencing societies and cultures and places that are uncomfortable for us, that those things are extremely important for a working empathetic democracy and for a society that is not racist, for a society um, that prioritizes interpersonal cooperation and collaboration rather than... Um, division and hatred and cruelty, um, certainly at an individual level, but I think also at a sort of local level and an integrated diverse society um, with certain levels of economic um, equality and justice are possible, but require, require diversity and difference. Yeah. I remember a few weeks ago following a, a conversation on a, uh, friend colleagues uh social media uh timeline where the conversation started about ways in which universities could do more towards achieving carbon neutrality you know perfectly reasonable uh, goal to have and the conclusion of the conversation was that if universities were serious about wanting to become carbon neutral then they should stop accepting applications from foreign students and that made me deeply uncomfortable. Um, there seems to me a very thin line between discouraging individuals from contributing to carbon emission and as a xenophobic stay in your silo, stay in your place, don't travel. And I don't necessarily know where that line is, right? Do I... Do I agree that one, if one could travel by train, then one should? Yeah. But I also think that public transport costs and access to public transport and efficiency of public transport, all of this matters. Yes. Um, but the idea that individuals who choose to travel to see their family or to work or to study 
should have to feel guilty purely because they've chosen to travel internationally seems to me deeply problematic yeah it seems like there's the target should be something else um i mean to me the a sort of capitalism has given us airplanes uh, it's given us an airline industry and it's given us a kind of an industry of borders and border patrol and treaties that allow travel across borders. And so capitalism has allowed for um, movement, you know, across greater distances in shorter periods of time um, and has done that for itself. Um, you know, it, it capitalism feeds itself via globalization and globalizing processes. That's part of it. Um, and I don't necessarily believe that capitalism is the solution that we should, you, you know, turn capitalism on its head and use industry and innovation and profit making as a way of solving the climate crisis. I am not in that camp. Um, but I do think there's something to be said for the fact that industries, institutions and systems create the conditions whereby we find ourselves in international uh, work, academics, tend to speak to an audience of, you know, between five and 50 other people around the world. And normally at a university, there's only space for one scholar of a thing. So we find ourselves moving around a lot. And that's how the intellectual world has has been for the last few hundred years. And it has been that way by design and is wrapped up in in capitalism, essentially, to then turn around and say individual academics or individual, you know, migrant workers of any kind, you know, really shouldn't be able to do that or shouldn't need to do that or, or should feel bad about doing that is to misunderstand the, the very complex historical capitalist construction of our everyday lives and the choices that we have to make. Um, and it is to misunderstand the responsibility of an individual versus, versus example, the oil industry or the airline industry um, that continue to use jet fuel to power planes. You know, the, there's a reason for that. And it has very much to do with short termism and capitalism and neoliberalism. Oil is the cheapest way to fly a plane. And currently, it's the only way to fly a plane the distances that they need that a plane needs. So, it's to us the target. The target is missed. The target is the airline industry. It's the oil industry, and it's kind of a lack of investment in scientific research and innovation that could, you know, give us a carbon neutral future that would allow us to continue to live the lifestyles that capitalism has trapped us in, has allowed for us to live, has privileged us with. I mean, depending on who we are, you know, we could use any of these phrases. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, as you were saying this, I was thinking, trying to clarify precisely where I have an issue because I, a lot of the things we are saying, I think many, if not most, climate change activists would, would agree with. I don't think, yeah. I don't, I mean, they aren't the biggest fans of their industry or the oil industry. I guess part of my issue is the while I accept that I, I agree with their position that an individual is not going to solve climate change and I also accept that part of the solution to climate change will have to include changing individual behavior 
there isn't enough understanding about the differential pressures that exist that make it easier for some people to change their behavior and not others yes so we mentioned greta thunberg before she's brilliant we are i think big fans oh yeah she's has inspired a generation i i always say if if and when we manage to beat climate change and secure a future for humanity greta thunberg and the movement she represents will be seen retrospectively as a key moment in 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 that struggle uh as we speak she has just completed a a transatlantic journey where she sailed from europe to america to go to to attend the climate change conference uh as a symbol in terms of optics it's it was brilliant uh but in the rhetoric surrounding her decision to to do that i don't think there was enough evidence enough emphasis placed on what seems to me the obvious notion that you know you've just been to america you've just been home but there wasn't a yacht for you there was no yacht for me no and to be honest i uh, my family home is on the other side of the continent so geographically speaking a yacht to new york from europe is very different from a yacht to san francisco and um you know there's lots of different ways that we can talk about this one thing we haven't discussed yet but that i think needs to be said is one of the one of the most powerful kind of critiques and one of the more cohesive critical um movements or, or kind of set of voices that are that critique some of this discourse of climate change comes from the disability community and yeah. the disability activist community yes. disabled activists and activists who have disabilities are brilliant and geniuses and i think we borrow and steal a lot yes. of ideas from them. Yes. Um, and it's important that we acknowledge that. Yes. Um, when it comes to talking about straws, for example, it's always a, a person with a disability that means that they have trouble drinking out of a glass without the use of a straw, right? Yes. It immediately, um, people who find it very challenging to use public transportation um, and so need to use, you know, oil-powered vehicles, uh, gasoline-powered vehicles, or, you know, any number of issues where uh, people with disabilities are erased and made invisible um, for many, many reasons. Yes, absolutely. And just following on from that, the other group of people who've also, where, where a lot of critical counter-voices have come from have been Indigenous activists. Yep. Um, as we're talking, the Amazon is burning. we've we've seen the horrific photos and videos uh, across new social media and again there is a uh, there seems to me a really quite profound misunderstanding when in so much of the rhetoric both from extinction rebellion and much much wider than that that uh attributes the destruction of the amazon to quote humanity yes there's a moral story yes that as human beings it is it is our fault as a species that we as a species are destroying the planet yes and of course we are not certainly not as a species there have been ev- in every community where there have been human beings in indigenous communities in south america in uh in tribal populations in india in australia and new zealand 
communities have for generations survived and managed in a in a more or less sustainable way the resources that allowed them to live so to to include all of them in this uncritical unquestioning artificial whole whole w h o l e uh, a unified whole that includes all of humanity is awful i mean it's just it's you are sort of you are you are effectively destroying their home and then blaming them for it yeah and it's inaccurate it's historically inaccurate and it's you know by any measure inaccurate it's really interesting too because um as you were talking i was thinking about how the the kind of flip side to this coin is a, a lot of people would say that a lot of indigenous communities um are quite sedentary or kind of live as one with their ecosystem and so they are they remain as part of that ecosystem there's a sort of on the left there's a there's both a forgetting about indigenous communities and also a fetishizing yes. of indigenous communities that happens at the same time which is fascinating yes um and there's a sort of wrapping up of of the culture and society of an indigenous tribal population or a tribal group or um with with the ecosystem um and creating a sort of idealized narrative about that group's relationship with nature yes Be- because of course part of the reason why historically indigenous communities in many places have been able to sustainably de- manage the resources is that capitalism has denied them access to petrol powered vehicles or nuclear power or weapons weapons or so so in saying that in in saying that indigenous communities often have a long history of sustainable development it's not from the way i'm see it certainly isn't to essentialize them into a uh, a kind of close to nature primitivism it's just that because capitalism has sometimes deliberately sometimes coincidentally ensured uneven access to technological developments it has therefore historically at least created uneven patterns of unsustainable development yes and also has made a lot of groups and individuals sedentary yes has attached them to a particular piece of land or to a particular territory um in a way that historically that they might not have been indigenous yes. peoples have always moved yes. have always migrated yes. um certain tribal groups it's part of it's part of their society it's part of the kind of history of the of um the community to move in some way um you know many move by boat yes you know the it, the history of the tribal groups in the the western united states involves relationship with the ocean and the coast that isn't just management of of resources in the ocean but also of navigation and um travel and movement and and um kind of migratory patterns and um the idea that that we should all stay in one place because we shouldn't fly seems to me to to miss a lot of the kind of historical cases of ingenuity and intelligence and engineering that indigenous people have used without petroleum you know for generations yes 
Um, if transport is one example of this, the the uh, not recognizing the differential pressures that exist on in terms of how adaptable some people are to to be able to make their life carbon neutral. Uh, food seems to be another one. Food is fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to say about what fascinates you about food? Oh, I mean, there's so much, but um, I did one degree in anthropology. Um, and of course, studying, if you do South Asian studies as a white person, um, <laughs> you learn a lot do you do of yoga? about your own relationship to food. Um, I, have, I, I don't currently have... I don't currently have a yoga practice, um, but I know that I should have one because there are, you know, so many benefits to yoga. Um, I don't do yoga right now, but it, it, but it is a really interesting kind of position when you're when you're white and you study, especially Hinduism, right? Because Hinduism is the one aspect of South Asian studies that's key. You spend a lot of time on Hinduism in different contexts. It it crops up, right? And um, I've been to a number of Hindu temples in uh, the five boroughs of New York. A few of them I've visited more than once. Um, and you eat a lot of prasad. Yes. Um, and you want to explain what prasad is? I, I, I feel like an imposter explaining it when I have you here. No, why explain prasad to me? <laughs> so, um, have you heard of it? It's such an, it's this like, it's just such an amazing concept. It's like, it's just so spiritual and i mean white people do have this response to to prasad but um in certain certain forms of hinduism it's more prominent than other forms of hinduism because of course hinduism isn't really a single thing it's a kind of syncretic religion that is practiced in different ways in different places that's the caveat here um in in certain temples and in certain branches of hinduism what's very important is an offering to the deity um, and so in various various ways, a uh, religious person will engage with an, a food object that has been offered by a devotee, um, and then it will be ritually offered to the deity, uh, usually in the form of a statue or a, a kind of picture, or, um, and the, the deity is believed to be um, present in that statue, present elsewhere at the same time, but, but a, a part of the deity is present in the statue and you offer food and then the deity eats of it spiritually and leaves the leftovers for you to then partake in and you imbibe a kind of blessed food offering that is returned to you by the grace of of the deity essentially the practice of it is is more routine and mundane and kind of every day um because there's there are it's often women in the kitchen of the temple who are preparing bowls and bowls and bowls of this stuff for um, people who visit the temple every day to, to offer uh, to the gods. And you get some, you take it over, or they do it in a batch. So it's all been in the morning. It's all been offered and presented on your behalf. You arrive and you have some and you imbibe. And, and you know, you don't have to be practicing Hindu necessarily. A lot of temples will like hand it out to you. I mean, structurally, it's not all that different from bread and wine becoming Christ's body and Christ's blood, right? The idea yeah. that food food acquires divinity yeah. uh, is, is, is similar, but yes. And there's a, it was, it was my first, experience with a kind of anthropological interpretation or analysis of the relationship between 
a food product or a food item that exists outside of our body and the meaning and significance that it holds when we put it into our body. Um, of course, biologically and physiologically, food provides us with energy. Um, it's, it gives us calories, which are units of energy, so that we can go about our day and make podcasts all afternoon. Yes. Um, but food is so much more than that. And um, our identities and our relationship to home and our relationship to each other and our relationship to the place where we live, which may not necessarily be home, um, our relationships to our families and friends um, and to God are often bound up in what we eat and how we eat it. And I think that because, because food is so deeply personal and also so diverse um, and has so many it, it works on so many levels every time we consider it or eat it. I mean, even like we, we spent two whole episodes talking about diet and exercise and talking about food and our relationship to our bodies. I mean, even if we think about it in that sort of Western medicalized way, um, the significance that food has for us, I think, is not particularly well understood by anyone in the mainstream. And I think there are very few scholars, really, who have been able to articulate just what food means to us. Yes, and in the context of climate change, then the issue is that there isn't enough of an understanding that there might be other kinds of motives, incentives, pressures, disincentives that determine what people's diet is going to consist of, other than should simply should one give give up eating meat or animal products or animal products because of its carbon footprint um, and again there is a there is once you lump humanity together as one body then you you don't have in any space in your analysis to think about differential access to food uh, you know the the fact that if you live in Is Islington in North London you the kinds of food you get will be different from if you live in sub-Saharan Africa or you know whatever and the idea that food practices can be a matter of choice and in that in exercising your choice you can choose to mitigate against or contribute to climate change seems to me at the end of the day a very neoliberal understanding of the world yes that we are individuals we are sovereign economic individuals and we interact with the world through rational choices specifically rational choices about consumption yes and it's about consumption quite literally but i think it 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 misunderstands um what it means by consumption it's a, a kind of capitalist neoliberal form of consumption which is just the purchase of a particular food, a particular type of food, and that if all of us stopped purchasing meat, the industry that produces kind of mass-produced meat products would fall apart, and without that industry, those carbon emissions would no longer end up in the atmosphere, um, which is, you know, there's a lot of scientific studies that demonstrate that that would very well be the case, but I think it misses... It misses the the 
importance of choice um, that not everyone actually does make choices, you know, yes. or can make choices or their choices are, are different. Yes. The choices available are different yes. or the reason why you make a choice might not be so simple. I think the more I think about it, the more it comes to problem for me, a problematic alignment between the human and the non-human. And what I mean is this, I've, it's it's not a subject I've read about, read hugely about. I, I I would never claim to be a huge expert on it. But in the in the little bit of eco theory that I've read, eco criticism that I've read, there is there seems to be an unquestioning acceptance that being anthropocentric is bad. That we need to develop a point of view that isn't anthropocentric. In other words, we need to decenter the human from our analysis and recenter it on something that is is more than human. Whether whether it's biodiversity, whether it's nature, whether it's you know, sometimes nature takes on divine form, whether it's Gaia, whether it's you know, whatever whatever spiritual, uh political, theoretical background you are coming from. And I'm not yet convinced that anthropocentrism is a bad thing. I am not convinced that prioritizing human welfare over animal welfare is a bad thing. Whether prioritizing human welfare over quote-unquote nature is a bad thing. I am of course not denying climate change. I'm not denying human contribution to climate change. But I believe that any of our attempts at mitigating against climate change has to put human beings at the center because otherwise what's the point well it's really interesting because there's a conundrum here right yeah so extinction rebellion and other other activists whether they are um animal rights activists because yeah. there's a lot of intersection yeah. now um yeah. will often actually say an extinction rebellion does kind of say we we place biodiversity alongside uh human interest you know biodiversity matters just as much that they are they are bound up um and a lot of eco literacy around animal rights as well as you say is is about identifying anthropocentrism and and trying to move either move out and look at look at it from a, a broader perspective or move to the side and look at it from a different perspective um but at the same time the underpinning, the whole thing, the whole kind of rationalization of or kind of development of a moral narrative that says we need to preserve the earth, we need to preserve the environment, and we need we need to take action is because an Extinction Rebellion says it, but so do the Sustainable Development Goals. So does the British government when it talks about sustainable development. So does the United Nations when it talks about the Millennium Development Goals, right? Every kind of um, movement for sustainability, and it comes out of the, the 1980s, is about making the earth sustainable and habitable for future generations. That is yes. the language that is used specifically. Yes. It is fundamentally right down to the name anthropocene yes it is fundamentally about humanity yes and i don't think it's possible for us unless you're to to move to a sort of extreme position that a number of kind of geologists and earth scientists have which is that if if 
If you're going to reject anthropocentrism in all its forms, then you embrace the possibility that with your kind of agenda and with your activism and with your values, you embrace the possibility that humanity should no longer exist. And at that point, it's like, well, then what's, what's the, point? the point? Exactly. Because humanity won't exist once we hit the threshold, you yes. know? So it's like, I think it's a really important um, conversation to have that we hit this conundrum and we hit this end point in the debate. And this is a, it becomes philosophy to the point where you and I aren't trained philosophers yes. and aren't able to move past here necessarily. But yes. I think from a practical perspective, it is about us. Pretty much all the publicly accessible research that I've looked at, which is not, not that much as I keep saying, has suggested to me at least that while human beings are perfectly capable of exterminating lots and lots of species of plants and animals, I don't believe human beings are capable of destroying the earth before destroying themselves. In other words, if there comes a point when the, when the earth is going to be destroyed as a result of human activity, human beings will have gone first. Yeah. And then once human beings have gone... Earth will figure out a way to carry on. Yeah, and that's a sort of, a lot of geologists take that position. Yeah. And certainly the geologists that um, were opposed, I think, to the the naming of the Anthropocene for political reasons, yeah. not for not for intellectual or scientific reasons. I think they all agree that that, generally speaking, things are different somehow. But for political reasons, a, a number of high-profile kind of earth scientists said you know what's the point of this are we naming this for the earth are we naming it for our knowledge of rocks or are we naming it because we hope that humanity will manage to create its it, you know strategies for its own survival so if it and i guess this is what it comes down to if if we believe that tackling climate change is important which we do we do we it is only important in order to preserve the future of our species. If you are, if you ignore that, if you ignore the centering of our species, then that's that's going to be fine. That's going to carry on. We won't be here to watch it. And in that case, there is, I I don't know if morality really exists in that situation. I don't know if there is a non-human morality. I can understand that there is a human morality to preserve the non-human. That I understand. Yeah, and generally speaking, I tend to agree. Yes. Biodiversity loss is, is a loss. But but the, it's a loss that comes back to us principally. Yeah, do we want to live do we want to live in a world where there are no polar bears? Exactly. If you take away if you take away anthropocentrism, for me you take away the biggest reason to care. Yeah. Because we are capable of caring about a, a world in which complex ecological systems create a beautiful and diverse and fascinating place to live our lives and place to consider kind of existential questions about being and our relationships to one another. Yes. And if you take away either that reason or if you stop trying to find less destructive, more sustainable ways in which as many human beings as possible can enjoy as much of the beauty of that diversity. And we're back to travel here, right? Yeah. 
Um, and food. And food. Again, what's the point? We got very existential for a pair of people who are not philosophers. I mean, you, you used the word practical. You said we, this is, we are not philosophers. We have to think about the practical, which I don't think has ever been said on State of the Theory. Yeah, considering we have a theory podcast. Exactly. Yeah, but I think, I mean, for us, our listeners know we're not trained in philosophy. No. Um, they know our limits. <laughs> And also, and I think too, you know, we often get asked to justify why we sit around and have, you know, these discussions about big ideas and why we just discuss and debate big ideas. And we always come back to, in the end, we live our lives through a series of everyday mundane decisions that we make with varying degrees of thought and consideration. And the conversations that we have and the discussions we have about kind of what it means to be human underpin and feed into the decisions exactly and any 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 future plans any theory any ways of thinking any ways of understanding the world can only come from a human-centered perspective because for better or worse that's all we have that's who we are i don't think we can conceive of a oak tree centered world we are not going to be able to figure out what an oak tree's version of the world is there are some geographers who've tried. How successfully? Not very, I would yeah. argue. In terms in, in terms of convincing me, and I, I remain unconvinced. And I don't think that's a problem. No. I don't think the choice is between giving in to climate change and adopting a non-human-centered vision of the world. I think, and I have to think, that it is possible to achieve a sustainable way of life which is human-centered, which prioritizes human welfare, but doesn't destroy nature, and which is concerned over and above everything in diagnosing and mitigating against unequal lines of power between and within humans. Because that's who we are. I know I keep repeating myself, but I think that's what it comes back to the only way we have to look at the world is through our eyes yep that's probably a good point to stop i think so too uh more next week yes um let us know if you disagree i have a feeling that a significant proportion of our listeners might disagree with us in this episode well i think with this because it's it's it is i would say one of one of the defining questions of our time everyone will have a slightly different take yeah. and so yeah. with all of every single person will have yeah. their own relationship yeah. to climate change yeah. that is distinct yeah. so please let us know um tweet at us uh contact us on facebook um shout at us if you see us and uh we will see you next week when we will carry on the second part of this which is quite different but but connected in some way on teenage activism uh until then thanks for listening Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.